On this edition of the Empire Longevity Podcast. And then when I went to college, someone, one of my friends had seen me swimming. I was a butterflyer because I'm, I'm strong and I'm, I'm stocky. So I have that good like butterfly arc. And she was like, you know, you swim with so much power. I feel like you'd be a really good rugby player. And I was like, meh, rugby. There's a lot of running in that. I don't feel like that's going to be a thing for me. And she's like, no, we need bigger players because you'll be a good tackler. And I was like, wait, you want me on your team because of my body size? Like, that's never happened to me before. Um, and there's a there's a joke that's like, you know, rugby has been picking the fat kid first since the 1800s or whatever. <laughs> Sit back and give this one a listen. As we talk with Dr. Megan Banker about obstacles, about perceptions, about mountain climbing, and sometimes those mountains are the big physical ones we see, or it's the ones we put in front of ourselves. Thank you for joining us on the Empire Longevity Podcast. This is Dr. Otto Janke, and again, thank you for being with us today on the Empire Longevity Podcast. Today's guest is all the way from the West Coast, all the way from the West Coast. We have Dr. Megan Banker, and uh, we're going to uncover some ideas and some some, uh, perceptions that go along with Megan. And first of all, Megan, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Super excited to do this with you. So, Megan, we uh, the first time we actually met was uh, last November in person, correct? Uh, I think so. I feel like everything kind of runs together, but I feel like, yes, that sounds right. We met in Boca at, um, at the Black Diamond Club uh, Marketing. Yeah. But, but we've known each other by each other for what, probably a year or two. Yeah, I think we've we've known each other over the interwebs for a little while now. Um, but it was definitely good to to meet in person and give you a big hug. <laughs> what was uh, where'd you go to school? Um, I went to I well I did my bachelor's and master's degrees at UC Davis in California, and then I went to chiropractic school in Dallas, Texas, at Parker University. What did you study at uh, UC Davis? I did uh, bachelor's degrees in neurobiology, physiology, and human behavior, and then I did a master's degree in neuroscience. Look at the so, big brain on Megan. I know. <laughs> Basically, I have a lot of really expensive pieces of paper. Um, it was a long, a long haul. Um, I had originally intended to go to medical school, uh, and so hence all of the the neuro degrees, and then pivoted and went to chiropractic school instead. Yeah, are there uh, neuroscientists or medical doctors in your family? No, I was the first person from my family to go to college. Um, both of my parents, my dad was a construction worker for many years, and my mom uh, worked in retail and owned a daycare. And then they together purchased a business. Um, they purchased a kind of gas station, uh, like deli combo thing um, when I was in high school. So, um, so that's a lot to overcome to be the first one in the family to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, I was the oldest of three of three girls and, um, I was always very, uh, interested in, in books and learning. And my parents recognized at a young age that 
um, you know, I, I was set on, on doing something great. And so they, um, you know, they invested a lot of, of time, uh, to make sure that I was well-educated. They sent me to a, um, kind of a, a school, it was a charter school, but it was, um, university high school in Fresno. Um, it was on the university, the California state university campus. And so my mom actually would drive me an hour to school every day to send me to this academic prep charter school, um, so that I could have an education, um, that they, that they didn't have. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, super. Oh, go ahead. And how about your, how about your sisters? Uh, you know, they were not as interested in, in school as I was. So my, my younger sister, um, we all three went to different high schools, which is kind of funny. Uh, she went to kind of just the local high school. Um, she tried college. She was there for a semester, didn't love it, wanted to come home. Um, and she is now married and, uh, newly, newly pregnant. And so she's about to have her first baby and, um, you know, she's, she's more into the family life, which is great. I think we're just, we're super different. And then my little sister, she is, uh, 26 now and living in San Diego and just kind of figuring out what she wants to do. She just, um, she works as a server and spends time on the beach and just is kind of figuring it out. So we're all very very different in what we want out of life and the paths that we've pursued. And um, I think that that's really kind of cool. Definitely comes with overcoming certain things though. I mean, me being the super driven um, type A personality, we clashed a lot growing up, but I think now that we're, we're getting older, we're starting to recognize that our differences is, you know, what makes us special and unique and that we all have different things we want out of life. Well, absolutely, and and uh, no family has uh, everybody the same. Uh, what's amazing, though, is uh, first of all, you went to different uh, different high schools. Yeah, so my parents, you know, took me to this crazy college prep school that was an hour away from our hometown. Um, my middle sister was like, I and our school didn't have sports or anything like that. It was all all school. Um, we were we had to be in band or choir all four years. It was like a music academic. Um, basically my, my dad was like, you guys are like, if they took all of the nerds in central Valley, California and put them in one school, that's where we were at. (laughs) And then my, my middle sister, she was, uh, she was a really competitive cheerleader. And so she was like, I have to go to a high school that has a team that I can cheer on. That's got a cheer team. Um, and she didn't want to leave her friends. And I was like, I, you know, I was made fun of a lot in middle school. So I was like, get me out of here. Send me to a school where all of the nerds can be in a safe haven. Um, and so my little sister, um, Lauren really wanted to go to kind of the, the local high school so that she could be with her friends and be on the cheer team. And then my parents ended up moving when we were in high school to a different town. And so my littlest sister, Sydney, had to go to the high school that was in the town that they moved to, which was about 30 minutes east of where we had lived growing up. And so she ended up going to a school uh, in a town called Exeter. Um, she went to Exeter High School. So um, yeah, it was it was interesting going to three different schools, but then you didn't have to overcome the perceptions of your older sibling. I know that there are people that have been in that situation where it's like, you know, if I'm the super nerdy type A straight A student and then my sister 
was more um, into sports and things like that. So she didn't have to live in my shadow, uh, my academic shadow anyways. I was, uh, I'm the youngest of four boys and mm. uh, I lived in the shadow of all, all three of them. And, uh, you know, each one had their own talents and, you know, friends. And so it was, a, it was interesting growing up like that. Uh, what was, um, what you, what was the instrument you played or were you a singer? <clears throat> I played, uh, saxophone. So Stats, I, baby. yeah, since, since fourth grade, I, um, I knew that I wanted to, to play an instrument, but I didn't, I, I don't know why I didn't want to play like a girly instrument, which is interesting. I just, that was like something that I thought of when I was younger, I was like, I don't want to play the flute or the clarinet. Um, which is so silly. There, there's not gender roles that are associated with those, but for some reason, but I didn't want to play <laughs> one of the smaller instruments that all of the girls were playing. So I, I wanted to play the French horn, but my school didn't have one to rent and my parents didn't have the money to buy me one. And so they convinced me to play saxophone, which is not the same, but, uh, so I, I started playing alto. And then when I went to high school, um, my band teacher was like, you know, I think that you would be much better on a tenor just because of the way that your aperture is like the way that your mouth is. I think tenor is better for you. And so they switched me to tenor and I loved it. And I was really, really good at it. Um, and so I played for another 12, 12 years. I played all through high school, all through college. Well, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got to play in Carnegie Hall when I was in high school, which is like, I peaked musically. <laughs> I was like, I'm done now. <laughs> I was the, um, I was, I played sax when I was in, uh, in uh, grade school. Nice. And then I met the, uh, the demon called rock and roll and it was all over. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I didn't like, um, like everyone's like, Oh, so you play jazz, you know, you play jazz and you play saxophone. I was like, no, I need, I need rules. I didn't like rock and roll and jazz for that reason. I need, uh, I need like very strict rules of what to play. And so I was oh, sure. a classical. Oh, sure. Uh, what, um, what, uh, what were you like, what was it like in high in junior high school for you? Uh, junior high was hard for me. I was, you know, I was chubby and I had really frizzy hair and a gap in my teeth and I was nerdy and, um, I got made fun of a lot, uh, growing up. And I think my parents saw that as well. And that was one of the reasons that they really looked into different schooling options for me for high school, because they didn't want me to go into high school, which can be even worse, um, with the same kids that I had grown up with that had teased me my whole life. Um, right. so it was, yeah, it was hard. It was hard for me. I don't have good memories of, of junior high. And so then, then you went to that once the, the special high school. Yeah. So then I went to the nerd school and I was, and I was good. I, I loved it. <laughs> Hello nerds. Hello, my people. I, I, yes. I thrived there. <laughs> what, uh, what was the, what was the change in the atmosphere or the people? No, so the people, what was the change in the, in the perception of the atmospheres going from junior high school to high school? Um, I think, you know, the, we all had similar, similar experiences going from junior high to high. Um, most of the people in my high school were the same as me. They were coming from these other little, I lived in central California for reference. So I lived near Fresno. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of the students that went to the high school with me came from these other smaller farm towns. So like I drove from Hanford every day to get to Fresno. Um, but I had other friends who would come from maybe like North of Fresno and Madeira or East of Fresno. And, you know, so we all kind of 
came from these smaller communities where maybe we had been teased because we were into music or maybe we had been teased because of what our bodies looked like or we'd all kind of shared this like experience of being teased for something and we were all put into this environment where then we could just be who we were um and that was really accepting um we had a lot of musical theater nerds we had a lot of like you know I was on this the captain of the science olympiad team like we all had these kind of people in a stereotypical traditional high school sense, we would all have been on the bottom rung of the social ladder. Um, And so when you put us all in one place, it really um, allowed us to kind of just be ourselves and and thrive. And it was also very small. Um, So each class only accepted 100 students per year. So the entire high school only had 400. And we lost about 50% of the student population due to how rigorous the academics were. So I graduated with 45 people. Um, So I think in that sense too, because it was so small, like our, our student teacher ratio was really small. Um, The amount of students that we had per class was really small. And so we all really got to know each other. I mean, I know people who graduated with high school classes that were like in the 600s. Um, So to be able to be in such a small environment and where our, our nerdiness, the things that we were teased for were actually considered our strengths. Um, that change in perception of, oh, I can be as geeky and nerdy and into these like sciencey things and into music and into theater. Like I can be into all that stuff. And actually like the most popular people on campus, instead of it being like the ter- the stereotypical jock was like, the lead in the spring play it was like, Ooh, that person is, that person is our quarterback, you know? Um, so huh. it was interesting changing, changing those traditional roles of, of high school dynamics. Um, yeah, I think that that, that was the, all the difference really. Was there, was there a, like a shedding or a, an awakening when you went to this, this high school? Was there yeah, like a whole new a, a, an awakening of you? I think so. I think I came out of my shell a little bit more. I remember being really shy in, um, in junior high, mainly because I didn't, I was worried about not being accepted. Um, and also, you know, I was teased so much and I, that happened less in high school. I wasn't, obviously I wasn't really teased for being smart because everybody was smart, but, um, yeah, I think, I think that I kind of came out of my shell a little bit more in terms of socializing. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, um, I was never teased for being smart, so <laughs> I never had that problem to be uh, <laughs> to be teased <laughs> to overcome. I was never I was never really concerned. I wish I could have been teased for being smart. Uh, was never I, uh, was never a problem for me. And yeah. so you go from there. How, how, why did you go into all the neuro stuff, the neurobiology, neurophys? Why did you go into all that? Because that that don't you go from seems like the school you were in to go from there. Also, you're going into a heavy, heavy science, which is girls aren't smart enough to do science, don't you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, that started with my, my interest in science was really fostered. Um, and I think that that part of being in such a small school as well as the teachers could really pick out um, kind of people who had talents. And so Um, when I was a sophomore, so I would have been, I also was really young. I went to to high school when I was 12. Um, so when I was, yeah, I know this, yeah, I was young. Um, that's not young, Megan. That's really young. (laughs) 
Most kids are 13 when they go to high school, right? I think that was just a year. What What do you consider high school? Um, what, what is it? Uh, ninth grade? Typically, yeah, it's ninth, 10, 11, nine 12. 12. Even then, you're still 15 years old. Oh, no. Years old. no. Most of the kids that I went to school with were like 13 or 14 when we started. I was 12, <laughs> 12 I was in sixth grade. Oh, no, yeah, ours, we, so high school is nine through 12. And so, um, yeah, I would have been, I would have been 12 when we started ninth grade. Holy guacamole. Um, so yeah, I was a sophomore when I, I was working with my chemistry teacher and I really liked chemistry and I would stay with her after hours and she actually recommended me to go to this uh, summer school that the California universities put on. It's called the California Summer School for Mathematics and Science, uh, Cosmos for short. And it was a month-long program at UC Santa Cruz. And you could kind of pick your different track. And I had picked um, organic chemistry. And so I got to go live on the UC Santa Cruz campus when I was like 14, 15, And, um, she actually, so my parents told me no originally, mainly because they couldn't afford it, but also they didn't want me going living in Santa Cruz as a 14 year old on a college campus for a month. And so I finally convinced them to let me do it, but they still couldn't afford it. And so my chemistry teacher actually like gave me odd jobs to help pay for, like she would pay me like a hundred dollars to mow her lawn, which I, you know, my parents were like, um, that's not a hundred dollar task, but she really like believed in me and believed in this program. And so over the course of a few months, um, she kept, you know, giving me money to do these little tasks for her. Uh, and I was accepted into the program and went and lived, um, in Santa Cruz. And I got to hang out with a bunch of other math and science nerds and really got into organic chemistry. And, um, I knew that I had wanted to be a doctor of some kind that just, I think since I was growing up, like my parents always instilled, like, you're super smart. You need to go to college. You need to, you know, that was just something that was always, always there. And so from a young age, I don't know when it started or why it started, but I just always felt like I wanted to, to be a doctor. And, um, through studying the different sciences, um, I just really gravitated towards the brain. And I knew that brain doctors were neuroscientists and that's just kind of how it evolved. I, I think I also, I really, really loved organic chemistry, um, but I didn't want to work in a lab. I didn't want to be a chemist. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of how, how neuroscience came about. Um, but it really started with that summer, uh, at, at this, at that school, um, one of the projects that I had to do was I had to do a project on a new drug that was coming to market. And so I had studied uh, breast cancer and I did a report on Taxol, which is, was a drug that had come out at the time um, for, for breast cancer. Um, And every year they choose out of the several hundred kids that go to the cosmos because they have them on different campuses. So I just went to the one at Santa Cruz, but they have them at different UC campuses as well. And so every year they choose two people that get to go to LA and present their research. And I was one of the ones that was chosen to go present my research on, on Taxol. And it was just really kind of sparked my curiosity when it came to the body and the medical system in general. 
Um, and so at the time I was really excited about going and becoming a medical doctor. So how many women were in the, first of all, you're a very young woman in, mm. in that degree and you're also a woman. What were the perceptions of you coming into that? And, and there couldn't have been many women in there. In my, in my program, my neuroscience program. Yeah. Yeah. I graduated with two women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm make the I'm make the small assumption they were just slightly older than you. Uh, yeah, I don't know their ages, but I would say yes, probably. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're starting high school at twelve. I'm gonna make the assumption that they might have been a little bit older than you. Well, high school, yeah. I mean, college in college, I was sixteen. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, sixteen. So I graduated at twenty-one. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Yeah, 21, because I did five years um, before I went to chiropractic school. And um, I, you know, I honestly didn't think about it very much. I, I don't know why, because I've had a lot of people ask me that question, like, what was it like to be a young woman in this neuroscience program? And now that I think about it, yeah, I didn't have really any any friends in the sciences that were that were women. I had, I had one friend, a roommate of mine, uh, who was also in sciences. Uh, she went on to become a vet. Um, and Davis, UC Davis has a really high population of, uh, Asian students. And so it was a lot of like young Asian, um, Indian men that were in my program. Um, and I think even the other women that were in my program were also Asian women. So I think I was probably one of very few um, white students. And definitely there was only a couple of women that were in the program. And uh, just for our listeners, you are not Asian or Indian by any means, are you? No, I am very, very white, transparent. <laughs> I'm a red. I'm a. I'm a redhead. So very, very fair, fair, fair skinned. Yes. Yes. Very fair Wonderful. skinned. So um, I do. I do think that there were. I mean, now that I'm like really thinking about it, there were times when like presenting research or things like that, um, I did have to stick up for myself a little bit more. Um, but I also hold. I have such a high. Um, set of values for myself that honestly, like if I had any perceptions to overcome, they would have been overshadowed by my own perceptions of myself, which is always something I've struggled with of pushing myself to, to do more, to be more, to, to be this higher level that I think that I should be. Um, and it's something that my fiance constantly brings up to me where he's like, you just put so much pressure on yourself that any pressures from anyone else just get completely overshadowed. <laughs> So where do you think where do you think that that striving for making yourself move forward where do you think that that came from Oh gosh um I think partially from from as far back as I can remember my parents constantly told me you know I was going to be better than, than that, you know, than they were that, you know, my mom was constantly like, I'm making sacrifices so that you can have a better life. And, um, you know, my dad has always said like, you're my retirement plan. Like you are, so there was, you know, and I don't think that they meant anything by it, but I think that it was definitely a pressure that was constantly put on me 
me especially because you know my my younger sisters um weren't very into academics and things like that and so my parents as an older child too like we we kind of sh- shoulder that responsibility um and so i think that it just started really young with with every adult in my life telling me you're so smart you're going to be some like some something one day like we are counting on you for our retirement plans like you're you're going to have such a better life than we had because we're making these sacrifices so i never wanted to let anyone down um you know, I remember the first time I got a B and I was so scared to tell my dad because I thought he was going to be absolutely just crushed. And of course he wasn't because he's a normal human. Yeah. Um, but I remember being like, I'm going to have to tell my dad that I got an 89% in this class instead of a 90%. And um, he's going to be so disappointed because he's counting on me to become something incredible. Um, and so I think just like shouldering that that responsibility that I put on myself. And I don't know if that's something that we're just innately born with, or if that's something that we learn or a combination of the two. Um, but I just remember that when I was younger, like constantly feeling like I had to succeed. How much pressure goes along with that? Oh, so much constant, just pressure in everything. Um, it's one of my, my biggest, uh, things that I have to deal with is, is letting myself know that I don't have to put so much pressure on myself. And I do it in every aspect of my life. And my fiance constantly reminds me of that. (laughs) Uh, What were the biggest setbacks along the way for you? Um, Money was a huge one. Um, You know, I put myself through college. um, So I was doing these crazy neuroscience program, but I was also working full time. I was working two jobs. Um, I've always had a couple jobs, even through chiropractic school, I was working, uh, like two different, two different jobs, 40 to 50 hours a week. Um, because I didn't, I didn't come from money. And, um, because of that, I didn't, I don't think I was instilled with very good money mindset either. Um, I grew up in very much of a lack, a lack mindset household. Um, and so, you know, that's always been a factor of, okay, I'm going to have to, you know, take a lower grade than I maybe would have wanted for myself because I don't have the time to study. Um, math was really, once I got to college, uh, high level calculus was really hard for me because I need to have, math doesn't come easily to me. Science does, but math doesn't. And, um, I needed to have the time to devote to it and really practice, especially with things like calculus. And I didn't have the time to go to office hours. I didn't have the time to devote to that. So I actually, you know, had to make make sacrifices when it came to my grades, um, in college because I was working so much. Um, and I think, uh, just mindset in general, you know, not putting so much pressure on myself because when I do put all that pressure, it really stifles my creativity and my ability to get to the next level because I'm so focused on perfectionism and, um, you know, wanting to be this person that I am in my head. And that can definitely hold people back. Um, I think kind of those were the big ones. If that's well, those are those are very big ones. <laughs> what, um, what, why, why chiropractic? Of of knowing that you're going to go into neuroscience, you're doing this. Uh, <clears throat> you are you're going this way, this way, this way. Then you you put the blinker on and make a left hand turn. Mm. Yeah. So I 
once I finished my master's degree, um, and at, during my master's degree, I started working with the National Epileptic Foundation. Um, actually, it was really weird how that came about. A, a boyfriend of mine, his aunt worked for the foundation and she was in charge of putting on a summer camp for kids with epilepsy. They do this every year in different states. And so in California, they do this camp in Yosemite where they take kids with epilepsy to summer camp with other kids with epilepsy and just let them be kids. They take their entire medical team with them. Um, they, you know, it's very, uh, they, they really protect the kids, but also at the same time, like let them just be kids at camp. And so she was running the camp at the time and they needed a lifeguard who also knew how to deal with kids with epilepsy. And I, one of my odd jobs throughout school was lifeguarding uh, because I was also a swimmer in college. And so in the summertime I would lifeguard. And so she was like, Oh, we need a lifeguard for this camp. And also, you know, things about epilepsy because you, you know, work in neuroscience and I had worked with, with kids with autism and epilepsy and other kind of neurodegenerative things. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so I went to this camp and at the camp, one of the kids had a chiropractor on their medical team. And I at the time had no experience with chiropractors whatsoever. I was of the traditional mindset that, you know, chiropractors are for back and neck pain. And why would you go to one? Um, you know, that's, I had never had any issues that needed that I thought, needed a chiropractor. And so I, it was very bizarre to me that that person was there. And so I started talking with them, um, about, you know, why I was like, do they need chiropractic because they have seizures and they have back pain? And he was like, no, you know, and then we started talking about the relationship between the spine and the nervous system and the connection with neurodegenerative things, with epilepsy, with other issues that I would have never even thought about and also seemed kind of ludicrous at the time. But, um, you know, they were well-versed in, in chiropractic, but also in the neurology behind it. And it really was interesting to me. Um, and then at the same time, when I wasn't working at this camp in the summertime, I had an internship at the big hospital in, at UC Davis within their medical system. And, for my part of the internship, I was working on the pediatric oncology floor. And then the other part of the internship was doing research. And there was a day that I like really remember vividly that I had decided to pivot was during the day I had finished up a research study and we needed to euthanize the, the research subjects, which were mice. And so in order to do that, the FDA way approval for that is to use phenobarbital. You just put them to sleep and then they're done with the study. <clears throat> but at the same time, I, that night I had gone to do my rounds with my internship and the drug that they were using for this kiddo was phenobarbital, just in a smaller, obviously dose, not a lethal dose. I mean, there's, there's differences in doses, but in my brain, I was like, I just euthanized a hundred rats with the same drug that we're, oh. we're giving to a child. Sure. Um, and there was other things that had really kind of jaded me uh, being inside the medical system that I just, it didn't fit. Um, I also hated going to the hospital every day and I was only 21 and I was like, you know, if I hate coming to a hospital every day at this young of an age, like how am I going to have a career? And I, like when I got there, it was fine, but just like having to get up and go to the hospital and like go through all the procedures to get on the floor and just all of the kind of bureaucratic things that came along with that. It was just, I, it became 
old quickly. And I didn't want to start a career where I already was like feeling that way about it. Um, and so all of this stuff kind of all happened around the same time in the same summer. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go visit some chiropractic schools and see what I think. And so I went to, uh, and at the same time I was filling out all my applications for medical school. I was, I was getting the point that I needed to, to make a decision about medical school. And so I went and visited Parker and I, it just, I was like, I, this is where I need to be. And so I actually turned down four, uh, four acceptances to medical schools and went to chiropractic school like two weeks later. Well, I like, called we're very glad you did. Yeah. I like called my parents and was like, so I'm not going to medical school. I'm moving to Texas and I'm going to chiropractic school and I'm going in two weeks. <laughs> you lost their minds. Less than turn coming up folks. Uh, oh yeah. Dad was not happy. <laughs> so, uh, and how many, uh, when I was in school, it was probably about uh, 20% female. What was, what was it in your class? Um, we actually, it was more, um, we had like 50 or 60%. And we had more, more women in our class in chiropractic school than men, which was, yeah. you know, great for the guys. I, uh, <laughs> I, I went to school a little bit, uh, a little while ago, by the way. So, <laughs> so you graduate from school and, and so, um, your next steps are you're in practice and how long have you been in practice? Um, so I, let's see, I moved to Portland in 2015. I worked for a doctor here for a year and then I bought his practice in 2017. So I've been in practice for four years. So for four years and along the way you find, um, when did you start to start to find your, one of your biggest loves, which is not your fiance. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> And they go together, uh, climbing. <laughs> yeah, it's mountain climbing. How did you? How the hell did you get into that? Um, so I always wanted to move to the Pacific Northwest. I have no idea why. I just was always like, I need to live in Portland or Seattle. And so, after graduating, I moved to Portland. I took a year off actually, and then moved to Portland. And when I moved here, you know, I really wanted to get into hiking and, and just really enjoy the Pacific Northwest. It's gorgeous here. And I also wanted to meet people. And so as a grown up, it's really hard to to make friends and meet people. And so I joined Meetup and one of the the things that was on there was this women's hiking group. And so I joined that and I had gone on a couple hikes and I had never even really considered mountain climbing as a thing. I knew people climbed Mount Everest and I was like, oh that's cool. I'm never going to do that. But <laughs> um which now I'm like, hmm, maybe. Uh, but so I didn't know that people climbed mountains and it never really was an interest at all. Uh, except that a friend of mine was talking about climbing Mount St. Helens. And when I was younger, I was obsessed with Mount St. Helens and like the, the eruption. I even had like a little jar of ash that someone got me. Um, and I just like, I, I watched all the videos and I studied it and I just was like, I don't know why, but it was just an obsession that I had. That and the Titanic, like it was like the two things I was really into when I was little. And so when she told me that you could just, right? I know, why is it's bizarre, right? I have no idea. I was such, such a weirdo. <laughs> okay. I'm such, I'm such a weirdo. And so I. She's getting so much clearer now. It's incredible. I know. I know. Um, and so a friend of mine was like, yeah, you know, you can just like walk to the top of that, right? Like it's a hike. And I was like, no, surely not. And she was like, yeah, you can walk right up and you can look down into the, 
the caldera and you can still see it smoking. And I was like, that's bizarre. That's not a thing. And so I, I Googled it and it sure is, it's a thing. You can, you can hike to the top of Mount St. Helens. And I was like, this needs to happen in my life immediately. Like nothing else mattered in my life. Like that was my one goal. <laughs> like, um, and so I was like, I need to figure out how to do this. And so that same women's hiking group I was in had a, uh, on the calendar, they had a midnight climb of Mount St. Helens. And I was like, oh yeah, I need to do that. So I applied for it and I was on a wait list and I was like, oh, okay, I'm not going to get on it. It's not, it's on the, I'm on a wait list, but I might as well like start trying to try for it and start getting, uh, you know, doing the exercises that I would need to, to be fit enough to do it. Cause it, it's, it's a hike in the summertime. Technically it's a hike, uh, but it still is, you know, 10 miles and 10 miles round trip and about 4,000 feet of elevation gain. And it's so funny because at the time I had just finished doing a 10 mile hike. Uh, and I, so in my mind, I was like, Oh, 10 miles, I can do 10 miles. And I think any beginner climber has this problem where they think in terms of distance and not in terms of elevation gain. Right. So the hike that I had just finished was 10 miles, but it was like 700 feet of gain. Uh, and so in my mind, I was like, surely I can do 10 miles. I just did 10 miles and this shouldn't be an issue at all. Um, what I hadn't considered was that it's 4,000 feet of gain uh, it's, and in five miles because it's a 10 miles round trip. So it's 4,000 feet in five miles and then 4,000 feet back down. And uh, so in my mind, I was like, yeah, totally. That seems reasonable. Um, and so, and I had only been on like maybe two hikes ever with this, with this meetup group and just in general. And so uh, I ended up getting on, the climb, someone had dropped out and I moved up on the wait list and I was like, Oh shoot, now I actually really have to do this thing. <laughs> and I, so I show up right. And it's a midnight climb. So it's during, during the, the nighttime in the dark. And so I show up at the thing and, um, the leader of the climb was like, okay, so tell me a little bit about what you've done in the past. Like what's your experience? And I was like, I mean, I've been on a couple hikes and she was like, mm, Hmm. Anything else? And I was like, well, I mean, I played rugby in college. Like I'm fit. Um, it's fine. And she was like, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. It was, it was hard. Um, but we did it. I mean, we started at midnight, we got to the top around seven and, um, yeah, I mean, my whole, my whole life changed that day really. And it sounds kind of cliche to say it, but it, it really did completely change my life that first climb. Um, and then go ahead. What's the perception of you on a climb? Um, so for, so for our listeners, you're not a petite woman. No. So I'm 5'10". I'm about 300 pounds. Um, I've always been a bigger human. I've always lived in a bigger body. Um, and I've always been athletic though. I mean, I was a swimmer, um, for a long time. My parents were worried in putting me in, in sports because I was bigger. They were worried that I would not get picked or that I, if you no, know, the team lost, it would be my fault because I, I was chubby. Um, and so they put me in swimming because it's a team sport, but it's not right. It's, I mean, everything is dependent on points. So if you swim faster, you get more points, but you're not going to like lose a team. You're not going to lose a swim meet because one person swam slower. It's a, it's a team effort, but it's still individual. And so they put me in swimming, which I think was a, a good move on their part. And, um, and then when I went to college, someone, one of my friends had seen me swimming. I was a butterflyer because I'm, I'm strong and I'm, I'm stocky. So I have that good like butterfly arc. 
And she was like, you know, you swim with so much power. I feel like you'd be a really good rugby player. And I was like, meh, rugby. There's a lot of running in that. I don't feel like that's going to be a thing for me. And she's like, no, we need bigger players because you'll be a good tackler. And I was like, wait, you want me on your team because of my body size? Like that's never happened to me before. Wow. Um, and there's a, there's a joke that's like, you know, rugby has been picking the fat kid first since the 1800s or whatever. Um, because it's true. Like they need, they need, you need the bigger players for, for the power. They're the people who prevent the ball from getting to the fast runners that can run it into the zone. And so she was like, I feel like you would just be such a good rugby player. And I was, I was a really good rugby player and I played for six years after that. Um, and so from there, um, I, you know, I'd always been athletic. And so when I started doing climbing, it didn't, it wasn't really a, a thought for me until I got more into it. So that first climb, you know, I climbed with 12 other women that I didn't know, but they were all a little bit older. Um, most of the women that were in this meetup were in their like fifties, like forties and fifties. And so I was the youngest by far. Um, and, but they were, so they were all older women. They were willing to take it a little bit slower um, you know, they were very, um, anytime I needed to stop, they were fine with that. At one point I was really struggling. It was like two in the morning and we were high up on this mountain and I had only brought Laura bars because I had no idea about climbing nutrition and they all froze because it was too cold. And so like, they gave me some cheese and that like, you know, reinvigorated me. And so, um, <laughs> so they were very helpful and welcoming. And then from there, I joined, um, I know I, I wanted to do more mountains after that, but I needed to get some skills because the mountain that we did that first time, there was no snow, there was no gear required. Really, you just needed like grit and like the mental uh, capacity to keep pushing even when you were tired. But the risk on that mountain is really low because it was in the summertime, there wasn't any like any, any snow or anything like that that was required to have skills. So, but I knew moving forward, I wanted to climb bigger mountains that had snow that, you know, you needed an ice axe, you needed crampon, you needed all gear for. And so to do that, I joined um, the mountaineering organization here in Portland called the Mazamas. And I took an eight week long climbing course with them. And that's when I really started to kind of feel the pressures of my body size. There was no one else that was as big as me. Um, you know, everyone else was, was younger. And I mean, they were my age, but they were all fit. They had all been climbing for a little while, or even if they hadn't been climbing, they were like runners. A lot of, a lot of marathon runners get into climbing, um, because it's that other like higher adrenaline long-term delayed gratification game. And so that's when I really started to realize like, Oh, I'm a little bit different. Um, and then I would go on climbs and I would often be the only woman. Um, and also the biggest person. Um, and so that the first year of climbing was, um, wonderful and awful all at the same time. I can understand the wonderful. What was the awful part? Um, I think it was really the first year that I got into climbing was when I really started to work through a lot of the body issues that I had shouldered my whole life that I hadn't really ever dealt with. Um, because there was always something, you know, there was always school or there was always something else to strive for that I just didn't have time to deal with my own feelings about my body. And so the, the first year of climbing was when I really needed to 
to figure out, okay, like my body does some incredible things. Um, but it was really hard because I was learning how to climb and I was also larger and climbing is a lot of, is a weight game really. I mean, I'm taking 300 pounds up a mountain where somebody else is taking a hundred or maybe 200. And, um, so it was a lot of, okay, I'm a little bit slower. I'm a little bit bigger. Um, it was a lot of, of being okay with that. Um, because on a climb team, you're only as fast as your slowest person. And so there was a lot of guilt and shame around slowing people down or, you know, if I, if I was feeling like I needed to turn around, um, I didn't want to say to the team, I didn't want to turn the team around because I was unable to make it. Um, I didn't want to slow the team down because I needed to move slower. And it took me a long time, really that full year. And I still struggle with it every now and then to, to be okay with telling the team like, Hey, we need to slow down a little bit. And realistically it meant that we got to the summit, you know, 10, 11 minutes later, it wasn't a huge, even an hour later wouldn't have been a big problem. Um, and now I see it when I'm, when I'm climbing with younger climbers who haven't gotten used to it yet. Um, I see it in them too, to be like, Hey, I, I need to slow down. It's like, okay, we'll just go slower then. It's not a big deal. Um, there was a couple times I had climbed with people that made it obvious that it was a problem to them. Like they wanted to move faster. Um, and so, you know, it took me a while to be like, well, they're just jerks and I don't want to climb with them anymore. So your first year, so let's be realistic. It's not always the physicality of it, but maybe just the inexperience also that slows, that would slow you down. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the inexperience and that slows a lot of people down too, is, is getting used to, to the sport, getting used to doing it, moving your bodies in certain ways, pushing past mental fatigue, um, figuring out nutrition, figuring out your layering system. Like there's a lot of things that go into um, learning how to rock and mountain climb. And I put, again, I went back into pressure mode. I put a lot of pressure on myself to be, be better. And I think I've, I've talked to a couple of people that are, that are bigger, that are in the outdoor space as well. Um, a lot of times what happens when you live in a bigger body, the perception is, is that you're, you're lazy, um, or that you don't belong there. Um, and so oftentimes we've talked about how we feel like we need to almost be, um, like so good that, because if we aren't, then it, it feeds into those perceptions. Like it, it makes those people right. So if I would tell myself, which may or may not be true, but I would tell myself, okay, I need to become a really, really good rock climber, a really, really good mountain climber. I need to have re- my skills need to be 100% dialed in. Like I need to be so, so good that no one will ever be able to say, oh, she couldn't do that because she was fat. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so undoubtedly mountain climbing. Um, and so we're talking about mountain climbing, you're strapping in with um, ropes and everything. You're carrying all that stuff all at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, so mountain climbing actually, actually gave you the perception of yourself that the body you thought that was actually a hindrance was actually at this time a, a positive. Um, yeah. I mean, I still, feel 
my my body in in terms of mountain climbing gives me um strength and endurance i mean i think one of my favorite things to tell especially rock climbers you know i hear a lot like oh i can't be a rock climber my, i'm too fat for that i don't have the arm strength it, my favorite thing to tell them well great cuz rock climbing is all about leg strength um it's not about arm strength and so if you're in a bigger body you tend to have stronger legs because your legs are carrying your heavier weight around so you're going to be a great rock climber, which really kind of opens up the door. It changes, it changes that perception and really yeah. opens up the door to them for that. So in terms of, um, of strength, I think that that's really helpful for me. And I mean, Andy has said that a couple of times where we'll be talking about, um, in terms of like crevasse rescue, I will often say like, uh, you know, being on a rope team, if you're, if you're on a rope team with someone who's a lot lighter than you, and you fall into a crevasse, your weight is going to offset that and pull them in. And I looked at it that way and he was like, well, yeah, but because you're heavier, you're going to have more weight to be able to pull me out. So I would trust you more on a rope team than maybe someone who's smaller. Um, so it's just learning how to use your body as a tool versus focusing on all of the negative parts of it. Um, and so there are still things that I think about when I'm like, oh, this would be so much easier if I was maybe a hundred pounds lighter, but at the same time, I wouldn't have the weight on my body to be able to support a 50 pound pack or to be able, you know, Andy is a hundred pounds lighter than I am. So if, if we get in an emergency situation, I'm going to be more equipped to get him out of that situation than vice versa. Amazing. Amazing. This has taken you to areas which you probably never thought also um, uh, on social media and being sponsored by, by companies. Uh, How's that gone? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the world is starting to realize that like plus size people have, (laughs) have things to offer the world and um, you know, gear companies are starting to make clothing that actually fits. And it's been an interesting time to become kind of this popular person in the outdoor space because um, the longstanding thought was fat people don't do outdoor activities because they're lazy. And really it's no, they don't do it because they're not accepted and there's not gear for them. Um, I mean, even trying to find clothes for me in the outdoors now is super hard. I don't go to the women's section anymore ever. Um, I only go straight to the men's section and straight to the extra large because that's the only stuff that fits me and only in certain brands. Um, like I know certain brands, they don't make the clothes and the argument is, well, we don't make the clothes because there's not anybody to buy the clothes. So we're going to waste money by making clothes that no one's going to buy. So it's just kind of this vicious circle. Right. But some companies are starting to realize that no, if they had prop, like if people with larger bodies had proper clothing, they would do the things. Um, and companies like Columbia, you know, they've been making plus size clothing for 15, 20 years. They've really been kind of the OGs in that space for, for clothing. And companies are starting to now figure that out and, they want our opinions and they want our influence. Um, you know, there's, there's not very many plus size rock and mountain climbers. I'm one of very few. And so I kind of found my people using Instagram. Um, that's kind of been my major, my main tool. Um, you know, people started following me and attracting, I was attracting a lot of followers who, who never realized that, they could do rock climbing or mountain climbing or even just hiking. You know, they just were like, wow, seeing representation is a huge thing. So seeing my body out in the outdoors inspires other people to say, Hey, 
my body looks like that. And if she can do that, then I can do that too, provided I have the access and, and the gear. And so, um, really using my Instagram platform for representation and access has been, um, a surprise that I didn't think about when I got into the sport. Um, I've had gear companies reach out to me, um, you know, asking if I would try out their, their plus, their new plus size lines. Um, I've had people, you know, gear companies ask to sponsor things, you know, and I only work with ones that are, are doing it right. That I've turned down probably more than I've accepted. Um, but it's, it's this whole new, new world of influencer marketing. Right. Right. That That's absolutely fantastic. That's absolutely, uh, that's a, uh, that's freaking just the coolest stuff ever. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what's uh, for the listeners? What's your, uh, what's your handle on IG? Uh, it's at PDX outdoor Cairo. At PDX outdoor Cairo. Yep. I'll make sure we put that down for people. Yeah. Follow me, follow along on my adventures. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Megan, the last couple minutes here, what's, uh, what's, uh, what's next for Megan Banker? What's the, what's the literally the next mountains for you to climb? In oh man. Well, I really would like them to open back up. It's going to be a short climbing season <laughs> with the, with the world right now. Uh, all of the trailheads and mountains are closed for business. Um, but I really just want to uh, keep, keep climbing, keep uh, teaching. I've been doing a lot of teaching. Um, I'm working on, so the mountaineering organization that I'm involved with, uh, you can become a climb leader and actually lead climbs. And I think it's important to have a, not only a female climb leader, there's right now there's like, I think 40 or 50 climb leaders and only like six of them are women. Um, and none of them are plus size. And so I think it's important to, to do that and, and really lead climbs for people where I can say, Hey, this climb is for you. If you are slow, if you are learning, if you want a supportive environment. Um, and I think that's really going to open up the door to who can access the outdoors. Um, and, uh, I've been teaching plus size rock climbing, which has been really great. Um, so I can just, just keep, keep going with, with really getting the message out there that if you have, the willpower and and the mental fortitude then you can really do whatever whatever you want to um really um i think that that's a huge part no we wanted to kind of talk about changing perceptions and i think changing your own perception about what you're capable of is the first step and then you can handle any objection that the world throws at you i couldn't have said that any better myself megan great <laughs> Fantastic. We are here with uh, with Dr. Megan Banker, and we've come from uh, being a a twelve year old going to high school to climbing <laughs> mountains. We went to a long long way in just a real short period, uh, short time of talking with you, Megan. I've enjoyed you, and uh, I love you eighty seven different ways. I love you very much as well. Thanks for having me on, and um, I hope to see you in person in the future and get a big big hug in soon. Uh, maybe uh, Indianapolis. Maybe, yeah. I would love that. It's on, it's on the plans. Megan Banker, we love you so much, and thank you for being on the Empire Longevity Podcast. Thank you, guys. A big thank you to Dr. Megan Banker for a wonderful interview. Special, special lady. Be sure to follow us, uh, the Empire Longevity Podcast, 
And make sure you hit up our Facebook page, Empire Longevity Insiders. It's a closed group, but ask to join. We'll get you in there. It's one of the coolest groups you're ever going to meet. Thanks for being a part of the Empire Longevity Podcast. I'm Dr. Otto Janke. I look forward to your next best decades.